0: But my other huge, massive project was I went through all of the James Bond movies. And that one I got like scolded for because, you know, part of how you got graded was by hours put in. So I logged in like.
1: All the movie hours. Oh
0: my God. Yeah. And the teacher's like, I'm not giving you all these hours. And I was like, well, I I watched all the movies. And this is, you're you're padding
2: the stats basically. You know, I got. Bullshit. I got
0: scolded for the James Bond one. Mm. You know, they
2: felt it was. Most of those, a lot of them, are real chore to get system. through. That's like not fair for them to say those those <laughs> hours were are fake.
0: Yeah, like what's the what's the oh god, some of the late Roger Moore ones are just like they are so fucking bad. Uh, long. I think Octopussy is really really fucking terrible. Yeah, there's is Octopussy the one where there's like in a climactic scene where he's just like running up all these stairs. There's like a big staircase on like a mountainside. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And it's like just watching like. Seventy-two-year-old Roger Moore try to hustle up a bunch of stairs mm-hmm. was like, oh, "Look at Bond go!" You know, <laughs> look at the
2: climb. It was like, "Is this where we've gotten with these?" Like, yeah, this is what's exciting. That's when he's a little. He's gonna have a grabber
0: like right. up yeah. the mountain. eighty-year-old man.
2: That's when he's like a literal in clown makeup at the beginning. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kurosawa should have made a Bond. That would have been <laughs> sick. All the bonds that could have been, I'm know. just going to
0: let that hang there. Yeah. I'm not even going to dignify that
1: one. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the things straight once and for all. We clear the streets along
0: his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He
1: will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. I tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves.
0: That's hot, hot
1: out there. Let's, we all walk out there it's very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello and welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and I am sitting here with Ryan Saunders
0: and me, Andrew Stasiulis.
1: okay okay great uh this is of course a weekly double feature podcast where each week one of the hosts picks a topic or theme and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that that we watch and then we run the gauntlet with this week's topic is summertime and i was thinking summer's here it's time to to turn it up, you know, get those vibes going. We've we've gone one rotation through now. And not only are we I think we're a, a smashing success, but I got to say this week this pairing is why i love you guys i asked these guys to bring me movies about summer and they brought me movies about nuclear holocaust that also (laughs) take place in the summer so let's just get into it andy what did you bring to the gauntlet this week well, when you said summer,
0: I immediately just went to summer movies. And, and of course, for me, I was thinking summer blockbusters, right? That's the, the summer movie that I grew up with. And I chose what I think is the, the summer movie to, to set the, 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 the pace for all summer movies to come afterwards, which was 1996 Independence Day. For those who haven't seen it, it's a pretty simple story. Uh, aliens invade Earth on July 4th weekend and plan to destroy the humans, right? Destroy all life on, on planet Earth as you know it. And it's up to a ragtag group of humans to save the planet from these alien invaders. It's a pretty straightforward plot. but. As I think we're going to discuss today, there's a lot of hidden complexity, both intentional and I think very unintentional within the film. So that's what I brought, a great summer blockbuster action
2: movie.
1: All right. Ryan, what did you bring? Well,
2: when you first mentioned that it would be summertime films, a lot of the first films that came to my mind are films from Japan and Asia in general, because when I think of summertime in the midwest i think of cicadas and the only other place it seems like where the cicadas come out in the same amount of numbers as they do in the midwest is japan right and um it's such a distinct quality of so many summertime japanese cinema right it's extremely green there's the rolling hills and everyone's just hanging out outside it's a beautiful warm sun and there's those cicadas purring throughout the entire soundtrack and so i you know found myself um, drifting towards a film I'd been meaning to see for a really long time, a film that most people just know as the Kurosawa film that stars Richard Gere, and that is the film Rhapsody in August. Rhapsody in August is the story of a summer vacation where four grandchildren are hanging out at their grandmother's house in Nagasaki, and their grandmother is a Kusha, which is a person who is a was a victim of the atomic bomb. Um, she was exposed, but she did survive because when the bomb went off, she was on an, the other side of the mountain in Nagasaki. However, her husband was not lucky enough to survive. And that is a specter that haunts the film as while the children are hanging out at their grandmother's house for summer vacation they receive word from their parents who are out in hawaii visiting relatives and the grandmother's long-lost brother the grandmother is encouraged then to reconnect with this american family but then there's tension arising throughout the film of acknowledging the atomic bomb the relationship then of having um American offsprings, and then how to sort of keep that relationship in a healthy place um, without offending either party. And that's sort of the central drama of Rhapsody in August. And so there is the Richard Gere is the nephew of, of this grandmother. Um, so she's, she's his, his auntie. Very similar movies.
1: Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I guess the first thing that I think is is very humorous, beside the fact that they're both summer films and they're they they are both about nuclear holocaust in in various ways. But did anyone else think it was funny that we had a German and Japanese director think about it?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about it now. Mm. What what I think is really interesting though about I didn't. Yeah, the I made that of connection. Independence Day. Marsh is talking about Roland Emmerich is the director of Independence Day, and he is a German. But if you look at his career and you look at the movies that he's made, like this guy, just he loves the good old U.S. of A. Like that guy has made more patriotic American yeah. films than I think just about any American director has ever had.
1: Yeah, it is reminiscent of the, yeah, the sort of like immigrant filmmakers of classic Hollywood who really loved, you know, like Frank Capra, who came from Sicily and truly loved America more than anything. I I didn't do my
2: homework, but I guess I'll ask both of you. Was Roland Emmerich... Uh, Did he go to school in America? Was he born in Germany and educated in Germany? No, he grew up in Germany,
1: and he started making films in Germany. Okay. Uh, And then he eventually... And actually, we can connect this. This was very interesting. I didn't know this. Roland Emmerich's first big Hollywood job was Universal Soldier, and he took over the production from Andrew Davis. Yeah, that's right. I didn't know that. Wow.
0: Part of his... Turned to I think America. I mean, it was very it was very intentional on his part because we were talking before about a movie that sort of helped him I think get Universal Soldier and a career in Hollywood, which is a movie called Moon Forty Four, uh, and it's a German production. It's a German film, but it's with American actors and it's it's totally in English. And you know something that I'd read about him was specifically that like he did not like new German cinema, like he was not a fan of it. He liked Hollywood. He liked American movies. So, you know, he very consciously like made an an American movie in Germany, right? That's Moon 44. It was like a sci-fi movie with Michael Paré. It's not a really remarkable film, but it was his calling card, right? Which would then, yeah, get him universal soldier. And for him, there was
1: no looking back after That's that. That's right. You're through the Stargate and uh, beyond. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So on that note, yeah, I did find, of course, you know, I guess it's the the connection, you know, as, as uh, tenuous as it is, both films are a sort of national tales, right? One film is examining the past of Japan and, and history and family and this intergenerational conflict. And then there's, of course, the American sort of propaganda, pro war, special effects blockbuster sort of thing. So, like, I did think it was interesting that both films are hitting super hard on these national themes. However, of course, different they may be and so I do again as both their 90s films right Rhapsody came out in 1991 and it's set in 90 and Independence Day right came out in 96 so it is it, it is funny again that they're sort of yeah grouped around this time and I was thinking about these films and immediately what came to mind is one of my favorite books Jay Hoberman's The Magic Hour film at fin de which is just it's a compilation of his stuff which you know deals with that idea of movies at the end of the century uh, and what that means and all that and so I wanted to share with you guys a little sort of context I think to lay the groundwork to discuss these movies he who imagines disasters in some ways desires them Theodore Adorno noted a half century ago imagining this disaster is what the movies are all about. It was as though a message had bounced back from outer space. The giant dinosaurs, rogue meteors, and implacable insect aliens who have destroyed movie-set Manhattans over the past few years were now revealed as occult attempts to represent the logic of inevitable catastrophe. The big-budget recreation of Pearl Harbor in particular seemed to have emerged from some parallel time-space continuum to provide an explanation for what was even now occurring. So it seemed to this resident of Lower Manhattan, September 12, 2001, the day after the volcano erupted, the asteroid crashed, the Martians landed. The Pacific Fleet was destroyed, the big ship went down. Movies offered the only possible analogy for this live televised phantasmagoria of urban disaster, mind-boggling cartoon explosions, digicam special effects, and world-obliterating mayhem. Blockbusters are what bring audiences together, all at once, around the world. Their lingua franca is violent action, and since the collapse of the Soviet Empire, those sounds and images have belonged overwhelmingly to the American-run, multinational force conveniently designated Hollywood. Hence, the familiar sense of a scenario directed by Roland Emmerich for the benefit of Rupert Murdoch, the deja vu of crowds fleeing Godzilla through Manhattan canyons, the bellicose rhetoric of Independence Day, the cosmic insanity of Deep Impact, the romantic pathos of Titanic, the national trauma of Pearl Harbor. And so he sort of, you know, he he sort of jumps off from there and, you know, he calls back to crack hour, right, where he talks about the films of a nation reflect its mentality and he uses the famous crack hour line, it was all as it had been on the screen right? So the idea that, yeah, these sort of like post-Soviet collapse Hollywood blockbusters imagined the disaster of the future. And I think that's, for me, looking back at Independence Day, I mean, it really is this, yeah, this end-of-the-century Hollywood spectacular that just seems so I don't know, from another planet.
0: I think even more specifically than saying, like, end of century, it's, like, very much rooted in the ideas of, like, Fukuyama and the end of history, you know, that this is a film coming out only a few years after the the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. And so what's our big other? Right. And I think that Independence Day swoops in at this very important moment, right, for movies, for spectacle, for all that stuff, because there wasn't this big threat. Who's going to end the world? Who's going to destroy the world? Right. It's got to be these aliens right it's got to be this because this is also you know well before September 11th right and and it's interesting actually for me the ways that this film is very connected to September 11th both like literally and figuratively it is kind of a turning point and it's a turning point for blockbuster movies as well it was a turning point for a lot i mean there's sort of like before independence day and after independence day in a,
1: in a lot of respects i mean this film it's almost the bridge between Star Wars and Marvel.
2: Yeah, that that's that's maybe one way of putting it, yeah. I agree, uh-huh. I think that's pretty perceptive. I mean, I was thinking about both a lot throughout the film, and in very d- different way, because both of those, like, that type of um, blockbuster cinema is very different, and this film, I kept thinking, was like a weird hybrid of both.
1: Because it's you know? got the jokiness and the star power of the more yeah the like marvel kind of stuff but then it's got the a, the action and sort of like griffith parallel editing of of star wars and and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff yeah so. i
2: kept thinking i know this came out afterwards but i kept thinking about the pod racing sequence in the phantom menace when will smith
1: is driving i made a note about that to specifically bring that up with you i was like i, I bet that Ryan's brian's gonna think this is like the pod race i was waiting
2: it, for will smith to say now this is pod racing because i mean it was just he's having a the whole time well, he he's does like quipping say... to the aliens as he's fighting them and trying to steer them around just like anakin does with his his pod racer yeah
0: though he doesn't say this is pod racing he does yell i have got to get me one of these
2: <laughs> welcome to earth that's what i call a close encounter
1: yeah, oh, so many ham-fisted one-liners. But yeah, Andy, to your point, again, I want to I wanna circle back to Hoberman, who sort of, and he talks about how the 70s disaster films, right, they sort of dealt in Watergate and the oil shock in Vietnam. And But in the 90s, unchallenged hegemony created its own universal antithesis. In the absence of the communist menace, the foe was everywhere. For Hollywood, this unspecified enemy in Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari's phrase, was variously visualized as Euro-terrorists in Die Hard, narco-terrorists in Die Hard 2, neo-Nazi terrorists in Die Hard with a Vengeance, homegrown terrorists in Under Siege, international terrorists in Under Siege 2, extraterrestrial terrorists in Independence Day, micro-organic terrorists in Outbreak, dino terrorists in The Lost World Jurassic Park, Russian terrorists in Air Force One, Bosnian terrorists in The Peacemaker, and Islamic terrorists in True Lies, Executive Decision, and The Siege. So, everyone's coming for us.
0: This is, you know, more than 20 years after Vietnam, and though, you know, the Gulf War had just taken place a few years prior to that, and certainly there were a lot of other, like, scattered military conflicts in the 90s, you know, that the U.S. was involved in, in one way or another, Somalia, uh, the Balkans, and stuff like that, like, nothing on the scale of, like, what we would, and certainly what Hollywood would consider, like, a war, right? And and a war that would require all of our toys, all of our big stuff, and, and getting all people, all Americans particularly involved, you know? This was at a period where, like, as Fukuyama would say, with, like, the end of history, it's like, well, that's it. We won. There is no big, great conflict. It's just going to be this continual globalization and spread of liberal democracy. So what else to do but look outwards, right? Where's our next big threat coming? Because this is, you know, as I said, well before September 11th. But when September 11th will arrive, of course, all that changes for America, for the world, and certainly, again, for Hollywood. But it's actually really interesting, like in history, like, when this film came out, like, how there's a lot of parallels and and interesting connections to the eventual war on terror that will arrive, you know? Um, the, The terrorists, as they were organizing September 11th, as they were planning that, like, they used Hollywood movies as their inspiration. And specifically, like, Independence Day was like one of those, because of, as you mentioned in that previous reading, these aesthetics of destruction and understanding of the value in the aesthetics of destruction, the sight of buildings, big, iconic, recognizable buildings in America, exploding, crumbling, collapsing in cities like New York, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., that epic scale, right? These aren't military targets. They're targets of opportunity related to a public's imagination. They're symbolic targets in the way that the World Trade Center was symbolic. Another really curious, I mean, it's going to, today is going to start to sound like, the more we talk about uh, Independence Day, it's going to sound like an Adam Curtis doc, because (laughs) the year that this film was released was also the very same year that a, I guess you could call it a paper, was published uh, for the National Defense University, And this was known as the doctrine of rapid dominance. Some other people will probably know this by the more colloquial name of shock and awe. And this was introduced as basically how the United States needs to fight wars from now on. And if you actually look at the doctrine of rapid dominance, it shares basically like every tactical and strategic principle that's used by the aliens in Independence Day with what they do to the United States. And again, will eventually parallel our eventual invasion of Iraq in 2003. There's even connections, of course, to uh, Rhapsody in August and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because specifically the guys that were coming up with rapid dominance and shock and awe, like their goal was to create a, a military doctrine that could essentially have the effect of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but without needing atomic bombs. right? They wanted to create that effect. Like, How could we, as a military power, do that? How could we render a population just so overwhelmed? But I just find it so fascinating that this doctrine was now being passed around military circles and eventually the United States government as well the same year that this film comes out. And it leads me to wonder, like, who, who got a hold of the other one's shit first, right? Who, did the guys who wrote Rapid Dominance, did they see Independence Day? Like, did they get a hold of it before they wrote that? Or did, you know, the guys who, did Dee Devlin and Roland Emmerich who were writing Independence Day, had they heard about this this thing, right? Because they are just so, so, I mean, they're, they're almost identical, they're really almost identical to one another, and it's just so fascinating to me that yeah, those both came out in '96, right?
1: Yeah, and in I know in in Real Power, uh, the book, it, it talks about how D- Dean Devlin met with the DOD a bunch of, I mean obviously right they were they were meeting very heavily and we can talk about the fetishization of the Air Force in Independence Day as well <laughs> but Dean Devlin said that the film was going to he was, un, he was willing to undertake revisions and that the film was going to make Star Wars and Top Gun look like paper airplanes and he said and I quote if this doesn't make every boy in the country want to fly a fighter jet I will eat this script the irony oh
2: too
0: being that the 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 U.S. like military actually like pulled their support for the film. They were originally uh, going to be you know helping them, assisting them with you know equipment and stuff like that, but they eventually pulled their support because they wanted script revisions, and Devlin and Emrick didn't want to do that. And and the funniest thing about that is that they specifically, apparently the the, the Pentagon, the really objected to all the Area 51 stuff.
1: Right. Like, that was their thing that pissed them off. They were
0: like, we don't, no, 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 no. They suggested
1: making it a civilian group that had been hiding the uh, UFO on their own. (laughs) Wow. And, yeah, yeah, I know Emmerich and Devlin were like, Area fifty one in Roswell is a government operation. Like you can't alter the American mythology in this movie because that's also, as you mentioned, with the iconography, the monuments. There is, yeah, there's these parts of this film, even like the, the LA earthquake jokes, you yep. know? Like it hits all these different sort of like classic American bits or and, kind of and
2: and because of all those things, it really feels like shock and all with a big bright smile. It's like such a playful destruction, and the stakes, while they're high, like, never feel high like you know i mean and we're never really seeing the human toll like there's a couple moments where like some people on the street are like completely engulfed in flames and you've got you know firestein just being like oh crap when the fire's about to engulf him and just melt him in his car in new york but yeah that is one of the things about the tone of the movie and then you know just to connect all these things we're talking about like a film that feels like it has no historical context but it is lost in all these symbols and iconography of like an American legend and yet is also at the same time even being removed from that context predicting the idea of shock and awe or at least just like incorporating it like very deeply into its own narrative but having a smile the whole
1: time and winking and telling jokes. Well, that's the American way. That's see, mm-hmm. like what really struck me. I haven't seen, you know, I've seen it on cable throughout the years but I, don't, I hadn't seen it in full in a while and it does lean very heavily on that style of Hollywood where... World War II sort of propaganda film, which is all about the Americans are, you know, these kind of like... Naive optimists who do just yeah they make jokes in tight situations and they're just yeah this film is just reeking of that kind of like oh we're Americans it'll all work out in the end uh, with you know a wink and a smile right yeah I mean that
0: that I think is also part of uh, Roland Emmerich I mean it's very clear that Roland Emmerich is a is a uh, I guess you could say a fan. <laughs> of World War II, regardless of his own national identity, but specifically, I mean, this, like, this follows the, the, the classic, you know, the cliche of, like, Pearl Harbor, and, oh, we were stabbed in the back, the surprise attack, and it seemed so dire. I mean, this is the same guy that would eventually, I mean, recently, the last two, three years, make Midway, right, uh, which follows, again, basically the exact same structure, right, that, Here's the United States of America just minding its own business. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, for no reason, like we're attacked, you know? And it's like, and then what do we do? Like our backs are to the wall. Oh, the Japanese are rampaging across the Pacific. And then this great big last ditch turnaround against all odds, overwhelmed, you know? I mean, that's the Battle of Midway. I mean, it's the entire sort of Pacific uh, war, like in in a microcosm. And that's very much what you're also getting here. You know, it's the same thing. This this surprise attack, and then what do we do? But again, also being, as we've said, this sort of end of history moment uh, and, and end of history movie, it isn't just about America. But this specifically is about, you know, again, this, this idea that, hey, we'll, we'll all put aside our differences, we'll all come together as one great nation. And that's actually why so many people um, around the world, a lot of critics were really kind of like miffed about the ending. Uh, and, and particularly like the the speech that Bill Pullman, who plays the president of the United States of America, President Whitmore, uh, the speech that he gives to rally everybody before they're about to fight the aliens. And, you know, he gives this really rousing speech, but but he says in the speech near the ending, right? Like, and from this day forward, let everyone around the world celebrate Independence Day. July 4th will now be a global holiday. And again, it's this end of history idea, right? Like, yes, all liberal democracies are, are the United States of America, and they're all now getting on the same page, finally.
1: Yeah, because it's like, he, yeah, he, he's not really calling for unity. He's calling for everyone to just be under the U.S.'s leadership.
0: Yes. Right, and I mean, that's how it works in the film, you know? Like, it's the, the U.S. come up with the, the strategy, and they come up with the idea. It's actually funny reading about the various, like, countries Uh, and I guess people in in various countries around the world who got upset with the film for a lot of different reasons. Like in England, of course, they were very like insulted by it because it's again, just America. Well, the British,
1: yeah, the British, uh, Royal Air Force guy is like on the phone and he's like, Oh, thank God. We've just been sitting around doing nothing. Yeah.
2: I mean, I feel like every single representation of another country in the movie is just like so ludicrous and hilarious. I mean, I'm even just, you know, especially towards the end during that independence day speech. And you've got the shots of, you know, people in turbans just dancing around the pyramid you know like in, in gleefully as you're
0: describing this kind of
2: thing where they're going around the world and showing
0: all these various groups coming together there's like In the desert, there's like a group of Israeli uh, fighter pilots and they're looking at another group of like Arab fighter pilots. And they all just kind of give this sort of like nod, like let's all put this shit aside and fight the aliens together. And it's so funny because, again, like that's this naive idea, right? That it could be so simple as that, folks. If we just had this big other that we all could go to war with then all of our problems would be solved. I mean, that's, that's of course, like, the, the tragedy of it, too, that it isn't, like, climate change. It isn't, like, it isn't this, this very, like, real existential threat. We have to create a, a, a totally made-up existential threat and one, of course that leads to war because war is actually the great unifier. Right, well that's you know? what he's
1: saying in the speech. He says, yeah, like let us unite, but why, you know, they're only uniting for the, you know, the counterattack on the aliens. They otherwise have no unifying uh, ideas, right?
0: And that speech is actually pretty interesting. I when I was in high school, I took a class on British literature and I had this teacher who was just obsessed with all things English. And she loved this movie. And I remember her telling us in class how, you know, the speech that Bill Pullman gives in Independence Day, that's just the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V. And Laurence Olivier like, famously read the St. Crispin's Day speech or a a version of it on the radio, which then led Winston Churchill to tell him, you ought to make a movie out of Henry V. And then... Olivier did, right? He made the, the Henry V film in, like, 1944. Which, again, Roland Emmerich, you know, this film clearly has a lot of his other influences and things he likes, other movies, bits of history and stuff like that. And it should be pointed out that Roland Emmerich is a big uh, Shakespeare head. And he, you know, made, in I think 2012, Anonymous, the Shakespeare truth-through movie, you know, Shakespeare didn't exist, and it was all this, like, political kind of conspiracy thriller thing. So for me, like, it makes total sense that, you know, here's this president this young sort of idealistic whippersnapper ex-fighter pilot ex-fighter pilot yeah in the beginning of the movie they, they establish by you know talking about how his approval ratings have gone down he's like a i think the youngest president ever and you know oh you know congress doesn't like you you know you're not enough of a politician so for him it's like his ascendancy of course is as you know the warrior king and like henry v you know gives this rousing speech, St. Crispin's Day, Independence Day.
2: This day is called morning, the Feast of Crispin.
1: He that outlives Good this morning. day
2: and comes safe home will stand a
0: tiptoe when this Rest day is named an and rouse him in the name Aircraft of Crispin. Aircraft from here will join others from
2: around he the world. He that shall live this day and see old age and you will be launching the, air, the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Say, Tomorrow is St. Crispin.
0: Mankind, then, when he stripped his sleeve, and should have his scars new meaning for all of us today.
2: These wounds I had on Christmas. Any differences forget. Yet all but shall be forgotten. But he'll remember with advantages history.
0: what feats he did that day. It's faith, that shall our name July. And and his mouth as household words. And you will then once again be fighting for us in the and The be as their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son and Crispin Christmas, Christmas for shall never go by from, from this day to the ending so of the says, world, but we
1: in it shall be remembering.
0: Should we win the day,
1: we few, the 4th we of July will it. no longer be known as the holiday. for he today that sheds his not a shall be my Friday. brother, one one day day so we will not always, and gentlemen in the evening of we will
2: You know, another thing I want to talk about with Independence Day is, and I get that the film is on, like, a very short timeline, you know, July 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. So, eventually, Jeff Goldblum sort of cracks the code. He figures out we can disable these shields if I implant some sort of, you know, computer virus or malware into their system or server. But, you know, we need to acknowledge, what do they attempt Before there's, like, this Jeff Goldblum studying phase, right, they try to drop a nuke on the ship. And we should talk a little bit about the way the nuclear bombs are, like, discussed and utilized in this film. Because there is almost, like, we're talking about this film being playful and a bit silly. It is weird initially when Bill Pullman is, like, resistant to the idea of dropping the nukes. But at the same time, it does feel kind of flippant. Like oh you know like, I don't know you know that might be a bit too drastic let's see if we can figure this out but it never feels like it's like a, an extremely moral consideration because he does acknowledge it does, he does briefly acknowledge that like if we drop this nuke like everyone who's around there also is going to die so the moment in the film where he decides to do the nuclear attack or the attempt on the nuclear attack on the ship is when he gets the vision of the aliens like plan of attack and what they're doing and that's when he you know they infect his brain and he realizes they're coming to earth to steal all of our natural resources they're doing this across the galaxy it's a big grotesque road trip from these aliens as they're just like sucking up whatever these planets have and moving on and he's so offended by that that he's you know, he's like. Let's nuke the bastards. And this is the guy who had just previously been, you know, the one voice of hesitation, or at least, you know, there were a couple other people that didn't want to nuke, but you know, it seemed like his team was encouraging them, you know, we got to nuke these fucking aliens. But you know, it's so the decision to then nuke them, or at least attempt to nuke them isn't a result of any clarity about how effective the nukes will be on these ships or on these systems. It's just an emotional reaction. Yeah. He's like, I see what they're doing. This is all I can think to do. We might as well nuke them. I think it's also funny that
0: with all the other nations that have nukes, like, we're the only ones that try it. You know? <laughs> like, it's yeah. It's like everyone else is just sitting on their nuclear arsenals, too, like Russia. You know, like, come on, like... Again, this like U.S. makes the decisions like we lead the way. Like, what is the rest of the world is sitting there being like, is it OK if we use our nukes? Are they using their nukes or whatever? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean like-
1: it is how it's presented, because it's funny how how much the film goes out of its way to try and be this global thing. But every step of the way, it's just everyone's just literally sitting around waiting for the U.S. to send them Morse code. Yeah.
2: There's also this like weird implication and and this is like something that happens in so many movies with aliens in them, that the United States are the only people that have any sort of system of research about aliens and that they're the only people that the aliens
1: would have ever come into
2: contact with.
1: Well that's because we have the only spy agency who's been leaking fake UFO reports <laughs> right. for the last eighty <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah. You know, they they made that mess in the you know, the post war period. Again right.
0: again, look at it, like, you know, the war on terror. Winding down, and then what do they do? All of a sudden, they start scrambling. They go, oh, "Shit, what are we going to do?" The Get war is Yeah, out. did any of you see Independence Day? Like. Remember that shit. Let's fucking go back to that. You know, like.
2: And I know it's like hard to ask of like this film like a certain amount of logic or reason, but I do think it's extremely peculiar that they don't tell the president right away that there are aliens, uh, like, or there's an alien research development unit or anything yeah. like that. Because you know they do say, "Oh, plausible deniability." But you'd think that the moment there was an attack, they would say, "Okay, we actually have like a research structure in place," <laughs> yeah. and like, yeah. like you'd think you'd want to debrief the president on that immediately and then there would also maybe be this sentiment of you know I wonder if Russia has like an alien research unit and if like if any of this shit has like landed in Siberia and if
1: they are you know like it is weird that it's like I don't city. think it's weird I think they're just bad at government
0: yeah yeah well that's oh, that too. Sure. Yeah. yeah 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 but it is like it's <laughs> like you're right though it's so like matter of fact because they're sitting there on Air Force One after they just got wrecked and like shit what do we do now what to do what to do and it's like Judd <laughs> Hirsch who plays like this old Jewish man, the the father of Jeff Goldblum, who's like, you, he starts shaking his finger at them, you all knew about this, Roswell, that place, New Mexico, blah, 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 you know, and then all of a sudden, the, like, the, the secretary of events is like, oh yeah, that, you know, <laughs> it's like it's like now that I think about it, Mr. President, and then they're like, "Fuck, let's go over there." Yeah. You know, it is so like matter of fact. Yeah, and yeah, they're they're bad at government. That's yeah. probably
2: part of it. Yeah, I mean, right. I it's guess it, it could be something that was happening in the background, but yeah, it is just so strange that that's never their impulse to, especially for a film that's purportedly about like unity and putting aside all of these right. like
0: there's no global mention differences.
2: There's, there's no, yeah, there's no, no mention of collaboration,
0: well, and there's no mention of China whatsoever in this movie what's interesting i told you both that i did watch the sequel right independence day resurgence which just came out a few years ago and in that movie now in the context of our relationship with china in 20 you know 21 or whenever that movie was released a few years ago like china is all over it you know like it's like the world defends the the earth space defense force is basically just like the United States and China. But this is 96 and our relationship with China was very different politically and economically even than what it is today and how intertwined we now are. And of course, with how movies are released and their big markets and audiences and now China being so much more important as a film market than it was in 96. So China is extremely prominent in the sequel. But actually, because you brought up the the, the Judd Hirsch thing, what's also really funny is in Independence Day, the scene that we're talking about where Judd Hirsch is, uh, you know, saying, what about Roswell? And then they're all like, oh shit, yeah, that's right, you know? What's really funny <laughs> about that is thinking, if he hadn't said that, like if he hadn't brought it up, would they never have discussed it? But it's actually funny because in the sequel, his character has written a book titled How I Saved the World. And it's actually really funny because it's kind of a joke in the movie, you know, like he's going around bragging like he was a part of the decision. But I was thinking, it's true. (laughs) <laughs> it's like yeah. If he hadn't said that on Air Force One, they'd probably just been circling around until they ran out of fuel. So-
2: because what day does he say it? The third? No, the first. Yeah. Oh, he says what about? Roswell it's like right they're away? in the air
0: right after they like left oh, Washington DC after okay. like the White okay. House gets blown up.
1: And he also gives uh, Jeff Goldblum the idea for the computer virus as well. So he's got a, he's pulling double duty on saving the world. Yeah. And honestly, yeah, he's like the one character that does feel kind of like like lived in and real. You know, most of the characters characters of course are just you know they don't really exist right. they're just kind of like there yeah and um, that's a testament i think to Judd Hirsch as well cuz yeah. he's just he's great yeah i mean there are a couple good performances in there but
2: i guess to really quickly though based off what you just said um in terms of judd hirsch you know giving jeff Goldblum the idea of planting the virus their discussions about defeating the aliens are always about breaking through the shield with like their brute force and their military power and there's like never any talk about how can we disable these shields like as if that idea is just so far out of the box and i get it right you know jeff Goldblum does say like their systems are extremely elaborate and way more advanced than ours are you know their tech is unbelievable it's but not they- that good really though <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's well, yeah, that's true. I guess it's clearly not. If, it, if all could, it took if was, you could just...
0: take it down with a fucking uh,
2: uh, Apple power book from 1996. Yeah, and a, by and flying into, modem the, connection, the, the, like, into yeah. the mothership that's like the size of another planet. Like, right. if that's all they needed was their little Apple,
1: computer. yeah. I mean, you could go on this shit forever because it's like, how does he even know what mathematical or computer languages they use? Like, it does, you can't just use a, a computer made on Earth and plug it into a spaceship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's
2: sort of like that just implied like blanket hacking element in Hollywood films. Like anything can be hacked, and like how they do it is just how the hackers do it. Again, you
0: know? though, th- this is from 96 when the internet was still. Like, uh, something in many people's just imagination, right? So people didn't really, I think, like, fully understand what you could and couldn't do mm-hmm. very easily, you know? What's funny, too, you bring that up with the, the like, him shutting this whole thing down with the laptop. I don't know if either of you read this, but, like, in when I was, like, going back through and looking at, you know, the ways that this movie was really influential, um, you know, moving forward for other blockbusters and American films was... Like the amount of marketing tie-ins that were associated with this, and apparently a huge one that I didn't remember was a, a tie-in with Apple, specifically because Jeff Goldblum's character is using a, an Apple PowerBook. So Apple did a whole marketing tie-in, and they released a commercial with like footage of Jeff Goldblum using his laptop to shut down the alien defenses. And the 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 slogan that they used for the Apple PowerBook was "the power to save the world." When you get just 28
1: minutes to save the entire planet. The clock is ticking. You better hope you got the right computer.
0: Which, again, like, think about where Apple went from 96 on, right? Like, this, yeah. like, world-dominating, like, you know, like, the power to save the world. Oh, is my God. Really? Yeah. But there was like a huge <laughs> there was a huge like tie-in with like Apple.
2: I didn't think to do that and that's like such a good idea was to look up all the like different commercial tie-ins for that cuz I could see that being a film that's like ripe for I'm sure there were tons of commercials at but, the time. I mean, I was really, too young to remember. This
0: this set like the benchmark for how Hollywood would move forward in marketing tentpoles and blockbusters. This was the first like major uh film release to buy a Super Bowl ad and at the you know like to to feature like teaser footage in the super bowl and they paid someone like one 1.3 million or something like that this was the first
2: time yeah
0: um and it was like it became like a a standard from that point on right now when you watch the super bowl it's like what big tentpole film are they going to tease you know and they specifically like did a lot of things that people hadn't quite done i mean obviously marketing of blockbuster films is nothing new but the 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 specific roadmap, the tactics well, the fil- yeah,
1: I mean, the film's, you know, the film did come out on July 2nd, but the, the film's title is an advertisement for when it comes out.
0: Absolutely. It's released that weekend. Like people were able to go see it July 2nd, which is the first day in the film. So there was this all that synergy as well of audiences like going and it's like. That's right now. We're experiencing it. <laughs> but again, dude, like, you know, bringing up the whole shock and awe on rapid dominance thing. Like, you know, when I got really like, you know, my brain was like broken when I, you know, did my dissertation on like war and media and all the connections and stuff. But like I've often said that, you know, the way that Hollywood markets blockbusters and tentpole films is through the tactics of shock and awe the premise of shock and awe is to completely overwhelm one's perception of like the world and events so much so that they do not have the will to resist and so you run the whole like all the stages of rapid dominance and shock and awe where you basically just control the entire operation of consciousness of like perception and you present yourself as so powerful so far-reaching that you know, resistance is futile, I guess, as they would say. But it's the same thing with, like, this film, the way it was marketed, and for for people to go as some sort of inevitability, right? Like, we know where you're going to be. And from Independence Day on, that's how almost every tentpole has been marketed and advertised, you know? It presents it as, like, you can't possibly miss this. And that's how f- films, you know, they go on and they just completely overwhelm the public's consciousness. Did you want to see this? or did they make you want to see this? And mm-hmm. how? Mm. Through this blitz, right? through this blitzkrieg of marketing a film, you know the shock and awe. you can't shock resist. and awe marketing. You, you yeah. can't not go see this film.
2: Independence Day was like setting the stage for that to come. Yeah, I guess you could say shock and awe marketing is shock and awe with a grin. Absolutely. As I was saying how the film feels, yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm. I'm not grinning.
2: I'm (laughs) certainly not grinning. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think it's worth mentioning that I watched this film last night starting at around 9.30 p.m., and I had just come home from a 35-millimeter screening of Simon Long's Goodbye Dragon in one of like the sleepiest uh, oh, man. quiet movies of all time. So to come home and then have this thing like screaming in my face with like a big grin the whole time, it made
1: me feel like. Psychotic. Um, it was. <laughs> speaking of speaking of psychotic, there's one thing I want to talk about, and that's Robert Loggia. Oh hell yeah! Of all the things I remembered about this film, I did not remember that Robert Loggia is in nearly every scene. I was very like, oh, they're deploying Robert Loggia seriously. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm used to. I guess I'm used to Logia being used like by David Lynch or in The Sopranos or like. Tim and Eric? Yeah, right, Tim and Eric even. Yeah, just the way people use Robert Loggia, because he sort of feels like he belongs in the B version of this, but this is like a big A film, you know? And it's like his presence to me really kind of sticks out in the way that, yeah, he's just deployed on ironically.
2: I think about the moment when, um, like the classic, you know, military blockbuster moment when they blow up the ships and it's everyone in, you know... In the room cheering as they're looking at the radar or they're looking at the feed, and I was just laughing at the image of Robert Loja being like, ah, all right, slapping the computer screen, you know, giving everyone a little clap on the
0: back. You know what's really sad or funny? Speaking of deploying Robert Loja, they deploy him in the sequel. Oh, no. no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to be like a hundred fucking years old. But there's like a scene where they're they're remembering the, the events of independence day. And there's this big like uh scene in a park where you know the the president is now a new president by the way um is speaking to the public about the events you know let's remember this moment when we all came together and they're like and le- let us remember some of the brave heroes and they and they they've got fucking Robert Loja in like a, a marine uniform on stage sitting there and he's just like a hundred years old and he just waves and salutes the crowd and everyone's cheering and he he looks so confused. He looks so terrified and out of it, it's so sad. But it's like, again, it's a deployment of Robert Lundscher or something. (laughs) And I'm like, let the guy... Sit at home. What are you yeah. doing? like oh God. yeah.
1: It's I prefer so I prefer Robert Loggia in Wild Palms mode.
2: Absolutely. Now yeah. there's a
1: deployment I can get behind. He's
2: just <laughs> a man who it seems like his soul is on fire. That he's just like a powder keg, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: You know, I generally didn't like love the way this movie looked, but one thing that not that that matters, but one thing I did really like about Independence Day, um, and it's a similar thing that I liked about The Mummy upon revisiting it recently was like all of those miniatures and how the ships like look pretty real because they are all just like miniatures shot to scale and like a lot of that destruction is done with miniatures yeah, oh, yeah. it like looks pretty cool yeah I think. I
1: think in general too i i'll give it up to to emmerich for he he can like keep it moving he can compose in scope like you know it's a generally like it's proficient. Yeah, it, it's it's a f- <laughs> it's not formal excellence, but it's formal engagement. And yeah, it maybe it's got a, a dozen too many push in on people's faces, but mm-hmm. it is you know he he gives you the spectacle. He gives you this sort of el- you know elaborate sets and explosions and like extras and mise en scène, and you know you get all these like RVs driving through the desert. Like that stuff looks great, to be honest. Like the white desert. uh, uh, oh yeah like the salt flats yeah, yeah the, the, salt that that stuff, stuff is yeah, yeah it's crazy. it looks
2: nice yeah and I mean not to beat a dead horse but like the it does seem like he is like referring directly to the star wars playbook in terms of the choreography of many, particularly the air battles. I mean, all the scenes with the, but I I did think it was like kind of unique because, uh, or at least just odd as a film because the the, the fights in the air feel way more like Star Wars than they do than something like Top Gun. Sure. Just the way it's choreographed. Like even beyond the fact that they're shooting like green lasers at each other and it's like space aliens, the attitude, the way it's like cutting back and forth between all of the cockpits, like it feels like the the command it's just like the battle of hoth in empire strikes back you know like it looks exactly like that yeah
0: i mean like though the public like clearly went out in droves for it around the world there were a lot of people who said man this is extremely derivative and like it's not adding anything new you know Mm. but i think that's to me again when you chose the topic for summer movies i went for a summer movie because to me that's what so many summer movies are right they are this just spectacle where you sort of shut your brain off
2: yeah i mean it it feels like a a goodie bag of all these other films and that is why I think it does feel distinctly like the ultimate summer movie uh, the summer blockbuster specifically like I was you know I like I said I had thought I had seen the film but I I clearly haven't like I was like it's something <laughs> I had discovered while watching it and yeah but I completely agree with your your sentiment like you think a summer film like this is like probably what I'm going to think of from now on, because it does seem like it's taking all of those things and it's this shock and awe marketing package. It's like, here you are, the summer, the movies, your popcorn, like this is it, Independence Day.
1: Here's my problem with the film as a summer movie. (laughs) No one breaks a sweat. (laughs) <laughs> Do you notice that?
2: Mm, yeah. Do you mm-hmm.
1: notice that? Yeah.
2: But isn't that like a classic summer movie thing of like a Hollywood summer movie? Like everyone sure. is so
1: clean. Well, Hollywood won't allow you know, to, you know, in most situations, they won't allow the degradation of our stars in any way. Right? right. And I was, I was trying to, you know, I was trying to look for any other summer totems outside of the, you know, the Independence Day sort of setup. And I honestly didn't really find any. Will Smith there's no sweat there yeah uh, it is so, dry
2: over there but for sure well you know. come on <laughs> I mean like I, no but I agree because I, get I, out of here no, but I agree with you because I also it's think a dry it's, heat it's and a dry shut heat shut up <laughs> I mean, it's because we're sweating right now. I'm sweating, sweating more than he,
0: anybody. To Marsh's point, I'm sweating right now more than anybody I saw sweating that guy. Oh, without yeah. a doubt. He's but wearing also, a combat <laughs>
1: uniform and flying a jet of in course. the desert. No, yeah,
2: he like know? looks fine. He looks like a bubblegum
1: advertisement or something. I guess maybe Randy Quaid has a little bit of... Well, you know, yeah, little, he's the one guy bee. they let
2: look like a human being. In, yeah, well, Randy Quaid's always sweating. Well, is he supposed to be
1: like Slim Pickens from Doctor Strange Love? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's right. A play so, on like that, again, yeah. it's I just agree. like a grab bag of cinema history, Absolutely. as you guys are talking about. Like mm-hmm. the whole movie is just like a pop culture stew, essentially. Yep.
0: Yep. Yeah. Well, I agree, yeah. They, This was written apparently. Uh, it was written by Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich on a month-long vacation in Mexico. So I imagine they just sat down in Mexico and they were like, "Come on, let's come up with a let's come up with a big summer, you know, sci-fi movie or whatever." And they just started riffing on like all this other stuff that they liked. And just were like, "Yeah, and throw that in too." And like, "Man, remember that scene in Love where he rides the bomb? Like, can we do something like that? Like, yeah, actually, the original ending was even more to that point. But in the original ending, they reject him so he takes his 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 crop dusting plane which is like an old biplane and he straps a missile to it himself and then flies up there to be like, I'm gonna help. And then he rams into the the alien ship with his biplane Holy and a missile shit. attached to it. I wish that's what happened. That, but they 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 apparently like they did that. And then they were like, No, no, this is this is unbelievable. This is too much for <laughs> this, this is movie. Too like, much. We've gone a bridge too far with this one. The idea of a of a biplane sort of flying amongst alien spaceships and F-18s somehow was just too much. <laughs> I, and, but That's like a compelling image. Charlie
1: Verrick like. could have done it yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: but you know Marsh, you're right like I, I, I kind of hear you on that standpoint it it might not necessarily look or feel quite like a, a, a summer you know in terms of the climate and, and it feels the, like
1: being in a multiplex in 1996 it does. in the summer yeah, yeah
0: it does whereas the other film that we watched Rhapsody in August to me like that was one of the things that was was so remarkable for me while watching it was like how it felt so much like Summer. Yeah. Like, Kurosawa understands space in a way that Roland Emmerich could never even dream, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And, like, the space that's crafted in Rhapsody in August, like, the whole film to me, just, it felt like
2: summer. Yeah, I mean, I would love to take a summer vacation at that grandmother's place. It seemed delightful, you know, just, like, looking at the moon at night, listening to the cicadas during the day, you know, working on the old organ in grandma's place, trying to get it up to snuff so we can, like, play some nice tunes, you know. Whoa, no schoolwork over the summer. Like, I got time to futz around with this little organ, you know. It is, it's, it's like a delightful summer space, despite the fact that it's haunted, uh, by the specter of, uh, the atomic bomb. <laughs>
1: Yeah. That's right. Well, I want to first, first thing I want to do is. I want to connect these films because we're not going to get a lot. I don't think we're going to get a lot of opportunities to do that here. Yeah. But I want to connect them by, you know, we talked about the importance of monuments and iconography in Independence Day. And there is an extreme importance of monuments and iconography in Rhapsody in August. So there's a part in the film where the kids go to uh, Nagasaki and they're sort of like shopping. Uh, They're supposed to go shopping, but then they like end up wanting to learn more about the atomic bomb because of their grandmother and because of what happened to their grandfather and so they go and they visit these these monuments and there's these different monuments dedicated from different countries like Czechoslovakia and China or Cuba uh, and it's such a different set of countries than you know like like in Independence Day another thing I wanted to mention is when they're like talking about the armies and the air forces that are ready to go they're like we got them in Asia and Europe everyone's locked and loaded and I was just thinking <laughs> (laughs) like oh no like what what about south america and africa and you know like just completely like they don't exist and then there's these these monuments which are yeah mostly from like left-wing governments uh at the time saying like we're sorry about the bomb you know uh and just the way obviously you know the way kurosawa's dealing with monuments in this film very different story and and conspicuous and
0: and that it's pointed out conspicuously that the u.s did not
1: absolutely deliver a monument yeah. yeah the little girl is just sort of like yeah where's the where's the one from america and you know they like her cousin's like you idiot like yeah. they dropped the bomb and there's yeah. not you know there's no monument here right and that's
0: like the whole thing with the family they're so upset that like the the grandma mentioned to you know the grandma writes this sends a telegram or whatever you know to to the family in the united states and the japanese family living in japan they get so upset because they're like don't bring up the bomb to the Americans. Like, it's going to make them feel bad, you
2: know? Yeah. That's Yeah, that's certainly, like, worth picking apart because I think ultimately that's, like, the heart of the conflict of the film is once it's revealed that the long-lost brother and the family that he has in Hawaii doesn't know that the grandmother is, like, a living victim of the atomic bomb and that her husband died in the bomb is, like, a huge... I mean, that's the crisis in the film. That's like why the grandmother initially didn't want to go to Hawaii when the rest of the family did. And that's then the tension about connecting with the family because they know the grandmother's going to mention it. And there's another like, there's a weird element of um, money involved in all of this because when they go to visit the family in hawaii these children who are vacationing at uh their grandmothers they find out that the the family out there is is quite rich they're getting reports back that they like run a, a pineapple plantation of some sort farm yeah. a farm yeah yeah yeah, yeah. A, a pineapple farm in hawaii and the Their parents want to cash in on this, you know, and when they finally do return back to Japan, right, they've got big crates of pineapples, they've got shirts with like the the cartoon pineapple on it. And, you know, that's what they're bringing up when these these children, after they've done like their tour of Nagasaki and they've like started talking to grandma more about it, they want to bring Nagasaki to the attention of the Americans and that the parents are both like, they think it would be rude. They think it would be awkward. It seems like awkwardness is like the biggest thing that they bring up. But then like the source of that awkwardness being that like perhaps their newfound wealth would be in jeopardy. But it's interesting because I think the grandmother's perspective is Or at least the the children's perspective is not, like, related to that at all. They're, like, they don't want to bring up the bomb to disrupt the relationship. They want to just, like, that is, it's like the elephant in the room. Like, they need to build that bridge. It's funny because I, you know, I've always known this as, like, the Kurosawa film with Richard Gere in it, right? Like, that's, like, what's been in the back of my head whenever I'm, like, oh, Rhapsody in August, late Kurosawa. It's got Richard Gere in it for some reason. Um, I was really surprised to see that he doesn't come in until, like, an hour in the film. And he's maybe only around for 20 minutes and then he's gone again and so throughout the whole film before his arrival there's this fear that if they if they find out in Hawaii that the uncle died in the bombing, that it's going to, like, fuck up their relationship, like this new relationship they have with this family in the States, and that if Richard Gere finds out and he comes, he's going to be bitter, he's going to be angry, it's going to be awkward, and it's the exact opposite when he finally does arrive.
1: Let's roll it back first, because I want to... Yeah, I I I I went a little far. Well, no, no, it's fine. I, I think, like, what what's interesting to me is how the film is sort of structured and how it sort of brings in all of these elements right because this stuff is sort of you know doled out in pieces right so the whole first section of the film is these four grandchildren vacationing at grandma's house and this involves mostly trying to convince her to go to hawaii because they want to go to hawaii for reasons kids want to go on a cool vacation but you know
0: also the parents and their ulterior motives as well
1: right and that we don't really find out until, yeah, the, the parents come back. And so, yeah, what really struck me is, yeah, this is a film about three generations and the conflict among the three different generations. And, of course, Kurosawa, no stranger to that kind of thing, all the way back to something like Stray Dog. It's or like the old and the new.
0: A very, very deliberate, I think, connection between two Kurosawa films can be made between I Live in Fear Absolutely. Which deals with a very similar subject matter and generational, you know, issues in grappling with the atomic bomb, right? Yes. Uh, For those who haven't seen I Live in Fear, that's a movie Kurosawa made. Um, I forget which year. It's Um, the
1: early 50s.
0: Yeah, where Toshiro Mifune plays like a much older man, but he plays this old man post, you know, atomic bomb Japan who now is completely crushed by the paranoia of... This could happen again. This could happen anytime. And he's like
1: trying to move his family. Yeah. And there's all this, and yeah. The, and drama. the kids are like,
0: "Chill out," you know. <laughs> like, and he's like, "You don't get it. They did it before. They could do it again. We're just this little country that we're just a, a a testing ground for this like weapon or something like that. And, and you know, this film I think is is works very well in communicating with that because yeah. now it's made much later in his life. I mean, basically the end of his life. And again, we have an, an older character reconciling with it. But now the grandma's basically like, you know, it's like the younger people who are like, don't bring that up. It's it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. Blah, blah. And she's like, let's heal these wounds. Right. Well, it's just, just the middle
2: just... generation that's afraid to bring it up. Because I yes. think the kids are pretty comfortable. With, I mean, well, they just don't really understand. They it. don't, yeah, they don't yeah. have a sense of the scale of all of it. And I think what you're saying, Marsha, about like the film sort of like in these chunks is probably a good like structuring like guideline for how we can talk about it because like yeah I do I I completely glossed over essentially like the other ways that the children are introduced to the bomb and their like sense of it and a lot of that comes from the way that the grandma tells them all these stories and it almost feels like folk tale or fairy tale there's this recurring image of this eye and then there's also and that crazy shot
1: of the eye like yeah one actual. of the most
2: like stunning images i feel like from kurosawa's
1: filmography and that's like you know there's a that, couple in here that are just like jaw dropping shots you yeah. know just I'm still yeah. I'm still shook.
0: One of the one of the kids actually says, like, uh gets very upset at one point says, so Stop telling us scary stories, right? Like and they're like they're telling, the ghost stories. Well, and she's know? just telling
1: them stories about her family. Yeah. She's like, Oh yeah, you know, like tells them the story about her brother, the shoemaker, who ran off with the shoemaker's daughter, uh, and then saw the the trees in the woods that quote looked like a double suicide. Yeah, mm-hmm. just... uh, and and then she's telling him, you know, these stories about nineteen twenties, thirties. 40s japan and so that's like the first part of the movie is the the connection between that generation right the the war generation and the the children and so like yeah that's like what's going on for a a long while you get multiple stories you get yeah the other story about her brother who went crazy because he was exposed to radiation and he drew just kept drawing eyes he kept drawing eyes and so that's another sort of like scary story and so they're just like peeling back all these family layers in the first sort of half of the film and the grandmother's telling them and she's also like kind of trying to remember Mm -hmm. all of her brother's Because she sort of claims she doesn't remember her uh, brother who emigrated to to Hawaii in 1920. She's like, I don't remember him, you know, just sort of leave me out of this. And so, yeah, it's just like this very touching relationship and clash, right? They complain about her food. They wear jeans and like U.S. college t- yeah. T-shirts. Yeah,
2: I, I had wrote a lot of those <laughs> down. There's like a New York baseball shirt. There's USC. There's one shirt just says Brooklyn on it. The yeah, other one says it's, MIT. It's, I mean, they're, they're garishly like, you know, American blue like, jeans. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I guess, you know, without jumping ahead, but, um, even just talking about these stories she's telling and all of her memories, that is one of the reasons that the ending is just almost unbearably tragic when she does begin to lose her mind. Um, and she sort of, like, regresses and thinks the bombing is happening again. And so, like, yeah, so much of the first chunk of the film is dedicated to her, like, engaging with those memories again and, like, making them fresh and sharing them with a the younger generation and it haunts them. But at least, like she's able to speak on it and like, you know, share it. Another, and now that just saying that reminds me of another just like emotionally overwhelming scene in the film that Kurosawa manages just so beautifully and precise because he's great even when he's very quiet and that's that scene when she visits uh, or when she receives a visit from that other woman who lost her spouse in the bombing, and they just sit there silently. Um, And they're just, like, resting in the room, and then eventually she leaves, and the
1: children ask, like, what was that all about? Well, yeah, the kids are all, like, confused. They're like, like, grandma's had a friend over for an hour, but they haven't said anything. Like, I think something's wrong, and nothing's wrong.
0: Yeah, and the grandma says, like, you know... There's some things, there's some ways of communicating where you don't need words, right? She says something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, I wrote
1: it like, down. She says, there are people who are silent while they're talking.
2: There are things you don't need words to understand, is yes. that another
1: thing she says? Yes,
2: both of
0: those. And, and I even thought then of the two trees that you were talking about yeah. earlier, right? When they come across those two trees, oh. which seem to be like reaching out to one another in a silent embrace, and then, of course, you know, Kurosawa, very, very, you know, conscious of that stuff. I mean, like, yeah, he's, he gets this, yeah. the children looking at these two, ch- like, gnarled old trees, like, seeming to, to reach to one another to embrace. And then the very next scene, I believe, is, like, the children coming back and finding the two old women yep. sitting across from one another. Mm. Like, oh, yeah. okay. It rhymes,
1: yeah. 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 God. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing what he's doing with some of this stuff, because there's also the waterfall. And so again, to, yeah, you know, to uh, to explain it even a little more, it's like the grandmother is telling them things about her past, and they're sort of, the kids are going out into the world and, like, looking at them, and visiting these sort of fabled kind of places she's telling them about. Whether it's, you know, where the bomb went off at the school in Nagasaki, or the trees, or the waterfall, where her brother used to go swim at night. And there's yeah a tale of a water imp that she's like you know very devilishly just like fucking with them and being like oh yeah the water imp telling them these sort of ghost stories about it but that waterfall then of course comes back again in the end when Richard Gere's in town uh, in this very emotional moment and so there are all these sort of like little rhymes throughout the movie and at
0: that point you're describing when when they revisit the waterfall and with Richard Gere like this American, right? Uh, they're, it's playful. They're, yeah. they're playing in the water. They're splashing each other. They're laughing. They're having fun. And again, for me, thinking about this film and the relationships that this film is establishing, it's establishing relations between generations. It's establishing relations across time. It's establishing relationships with space. And you know how kurosawa is in in a way for this i think you know very very old man at this point in his life and in his career sort of trying to communicate between these these periods of time the past and the present it's it's this relationship and about reclaiming these things about reclaiming time reclaiming space and so in in that way you know you can establish this waterfall as this sort of scary space but then the the space can be reclaimed as a, as a place of joy and in, in a very similar way he has the the scene where you know, it's the they go and visit the school that was destroyed in the bombing. And they're looking at this skeletonized, like gnarled and twisted playground. and they're very scared. you know, the kids are are frightened by it, you know and and it seems like this hollowed um, you know place of of death. And then what happens? The survivors come in. And what are the survivors doing?
1: Planting flowers. They're
0: planting beautiful flowers. And and they're not scared of it. They're they're turning it into a place of of life, not a place of death, a place where new life can grow. And I think like you're saying, these rhymes, you you see a lot of that where the children are are just as much learning from the adults as like, you know, the the other way around, you know, of the children being like, oh, relax, grandma. It's like the children have to also like. It they get devastated by learning about this stuff and and then are, are very like upset and scared by it. But then there's also this this way for those who've gone through these traumatic things to say, and yet we went on. You're here simply because we didn't die, we didn't give up, you know, that we rebuilt. And we moved on so that you can wear this Harvard T-shirt or whatever.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, now that's a great entry point. Because, again, this film, very much like a sort of like Ho Shao Shen, like... Summer. Summer! We're hanging out. It's very kind of like, you know, the camera work is is sort of like panning and tilting very slowly and settling in for long takes that are like, all the kids in a single frame for like five minutes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so, it, I mean, it's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, yeah, the film sort of, like, gets disrupted. So the parents, the middle generation in the family, are, like, bougie, middle-class, sort of aspirational, you know, kind of, like... Middle-class drivers. Yeah, they're very much middle-class drivers, and all they can see in the family situation is Richard, you know, Richard Gere's family is is rich, they've got a pineapple farm, and... The the one the one dad he doesn't want to be a clerk forever as he claims right, right? Uh, and so they both see both of the sort of sets of parents see yeah just they see the money they're just the materialistic boomers of the situation mm-hmm. who just come in and they they, they, they like, when like, they arrive American when they arrive yes well but they're
0: also they, they were carrying like cases of pineapple. yeah, yeah. Like, they, also, like, had, they came out of the garden, they got like cases of pineapple so they're, funny <laughs> they're, they're so excited but again like you know in talking about like i guess points of connection and points of departure between these two films that seemingly are just so you know in, in opposite places from one another and and mindsets and and yeah they they certainly are but talking about that space you know it, it recalls part of our earlier conversation right because this is a film that's dealing with that kind of, like, the destruction of space, right? Uh, I should say Rhapsody in August is dealing with this, like, destruction of space, but showing you, like, life after this destruction, right? The, the, the building of destruction, the, the, the building after destruction, after a you know this this apocalyptic event and 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 telling us you know about life and about growth out of these things and moving beyond this whereas you know in you know the american imagination a, a country that's never really had anything i mean until september 11th but in 1996 never anything that devastating on american soil never like seeing an entire city leveled by an explosion like For us, in our big movies, we revel in that shit. That's what we go for. We go to see the destruction, you know? It isn't the idea of moving past destruction. It's the idea that destruction itself is why we buy the ticket, right? It's like what draws us in, Mm -hmm. uh, you know? And and to see two films dealing with that idea of space and destruction and the aesthetics of destruction in so completely like different ways, you know, I think is just such a testament to two totally different cultural mindsets on war and on violence. And, and you know, one sees it as something, you know, to, to move past. The grandma even says, right, when she's talking about war at one point, I wrote it down, she said, you know, in reflecting on this idea of the atomic bomb, people do anything just to win a war. You know, this this thing of, like, just creating destruction and bombing civilians and leveling entire cities. People will do anything just to win a stupid fucking war. And it's like, yeah, that's the tragedy. Whereas in Independence Day, it's like, you better do anything
2: to win that war. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's yeah. the American mindset. You know, it's like... Nuke the sons of bitches, you know? Totally. It's just like the solution that they have in the back of their minds. Like, oh, of course, this will just wipe away all of our problems. Like, because it's just like we can get this wrapped up neatly in a bow. Like, get this done. Use the nuke. And yeah, you talking about growth in Rhapsody in August also, you know, it was, I mean, of course, it's set in the summer because many of the events in the film, like, surround, you know, the anniversary of the atomic bombing, you know, on August 9th. You know, she won't go to Hawaii until she can pay respects, like, at a memorial for her husband. But at the same time, like, yeah, all of the sequences shot like in the city proper of Nagasaki are very much like a city alive during the summer. You know, like everybody's out and about. It's warm. It's beautiful. Life is going on. There is like no sense of destruction anywhere outside of just like memorials and memory Um, but yeah, no, it is like... And yet
1: though, Kurosawa goes to great pains to remind, you know, through the eyes of the children, he, he keeps, they keep saying like, and yet people forget and people forget, right? So there's also that element of it too, where, yeah, just the dilution of this thing as it's being passed in, like the bomb is now, yeah, it's another story in this woman's life that she's like passed down. And even the kids are like, yeah, most people don't like talk about this shit. No one, like people don't want to think about it you know Mm -hmm.
0: um it's awkward to think about yeah it's embarrassing to think about
1: and i actually
2: think that that element is really interesting this like sort of culture clash when richard gear finally does arrive right there's all this discussion about how we don't want to talk about this we don't want them to know the americans will be really sensitive and it's just all
1: hush 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 our free ride on that pineapple farm exactly
2: and then richard gear arrives and the first things out of his mouth in the airport when they greet him was i like can't believe we didn't know i am so sorry we didn't know why didn't you tell us
0: and uh, and he right away wants to go to the the site he wants right. to go right away way. yeah it's yeah. like we'll
2: we'll get there but i want to see this first i want to go here first and him just saying like when we all found out we all broke down and cried and it's like the least awkward thing. And I like, I was even thinking that like, I was, uh, you know, I, it's so hard to imagine being the country that was bombed in that situation. And then like growing up and like having that generational trauma in your family about like your fears of like approaching, you know, the the generation that was like, the perpetrators of it but i like remembered thinking i'm like where like this fear to me feels so unfounded like like i feel like when you know like and it, it is when i'm like when richard gear comes he's not going to be mad you know but then it was like god well, this I mean, fear
1: you know i feel like that's i feel like a lot of Amer- americans would would be, mad, would oh, be no, man. Oh no, totally.
2: But I was just thinking about Richard Gere. Well, yeah, but yeah, here's the thing. Yeah, I know, thing. but that's not the. But course, no, that's like... an
1: interesting part of the film because the way that the American family has maintained Japanese customs and traditions speaks to how they're actually going to sort of receive it, right? Like, they almost have this, like, misunderstanding. I mean, Richard Gere speaks Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you know, you could imagine in a lot of scenarios where the children of immigrants don't speak the language, Mm -hmm. and yet... Oh yeah, they they all speak a little bit of it, you know, and you get the sense that that Japanese identity was maintained by Grandma's brother, mm-hmm. you know, in Hawaii, and sort of planted those roots there. It wasn't just he escaped and became an American, but we don't find that out, of course, until Richard Gere arrives. and yeah. he's just extremely sensitive and sympathetic and enlightened. Uh, but in it's that still like, Richard of course, Gere like way. this
2: extreme weight on his shoulders and like something he knows, like. I need to reckon with this. Like, you need to take me. That's the first stop we got to make. Like, I got to go to where he died. Because it's like, all of a sudden, there's this, like, he's just suddenly inherited so much into his soul, in a way. And he's like, take me there right now. And I, you know, I can't think of a Kurosawa film... Uh, that has made me cry, but I like teared up when Richard Gere went to the spot that he died, and then and all the those people brought game. in and they like started planting everything. I like couldn't believe it. I, I can think of several Kurosawa films that made me cry. Well, I guess like <laughs> yeah, I mean, but yeah. I like just like it takes a lot to get me to like actually tear up while watching a film because I have no soul, and this film did. Like this film, like I like had
1: like waterworks. Yeah. I don't. It's know? it's devastating. この
0: I know knows Nagasaki. Late Kurosawa
2: hits different. Late late Kurosawa hits different. I mean, you know, that was something I was going to talk about it as, like, you know, late Kurosawa as a late film, and I don't know if you read many of their like took a look at some of the reviews for rhapsody but they're all like pretty negative and it almost feels like a psyop because the all the reviews they bring up like the same thing they're like this film refuses to acknowledge like why the bomb was dropped as if like that's some sort of responsibility by kurosawa in this film
1: i don't think is it, i don't think grandma was part of the imperial government regardless
2: yeah absolutely
0: Beyond that, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, to me, what I appreciated about this movie was specifically that it it didn't go into that. It didn't try to uphold the fucking myth, and it is a myth, of, you know, the atomic bomb being this necessary thing to, to beat Imperial Japan in world war II, it was not necessary. Like mm-hmm. that is a myth that has been propagated by the United States and the West. Let's be honest for what, you know, fucking 75 years now that it was like, we had to do this. Like if we didn't do it, Like, the war would have gone on and it was the only way to stop it. Look, it's a myth that's been propagated that it was necessary because Japan was too fanatical and it would have been impossible to invade Japan. Like, Japan, Imperial Japan in 1945 was beaten. The war was over, right? The island itself was cut off. The Russians were now involved. The reason that the bomb was dropped had nothing to do with beating the imperial japan the reason the bombs were dropped was to show the russians we had more of these things and look what they can do and look what they'll fucking do to you too if you try to take over the rest of europe or whatever it was meant to stop the russian advance it was meant to tell them slow down because these could just as easily be used on you and they they were used on japan because of of course the the western you know the white ass allies dropped them on, on Asian people. Mm -hmm. It was a racist thing in a racist war. They could have just simply been starved out. They were ready to capitulate at any moment. Those bombs were dropped. And it had nothing to do with ending the war. And again, that's why I brought up the quotation where it was like, people will do anything just to win a war. Like, the grandma's so cynical. She gets it. She knows it was unnecessary. It was just a cruel act. And and so for me, you know, hearing that that some critics would say that, like, well, they didn't get into the, you know, explaining it. It just seems like this horrific thing that was just done just to be fucking cruel. And it's like, Yes! Because that's exactly what it was.
2: Yeah, and I mean, and that's the thing. It's Kurosawa makes that argument in the least aggressive way possible, and that like that's to me why this all feels like a psyop. That that was the talking point of this film. That like Kurosawa was being crude by like withholding information about you know the imperial government of Japan. But however, there is you know one review. Um, that was quite glowing by um, a, a Chicago critic who always had his finger on the pulse. And that is our man, Jonathan Rosenbaum. A couple, just a thing he mentions in his capsule. You know, he starts it off by saying a beautiful reminder from octogenarian Akira Kurosawa that he's still the master, despite the mixed evidence of his previous Two films. But then, you know, one thing that Rosenbaum hits in his capsule that Andy, I think it relates a lot to what you were talking about in terms of like iconography, symbol and space in the film. And that is when Rosenbaum mentions the pastoral mood and performances of this film are both reminiscent of late John Ford and Kurosawa's mise-en-scene and editing have seldom been more poetically apt. And it really does feel like a John Ford film throughout much of it. This idea of like generations and their understanding of space and like returning to all these spaces. I mean, it felt like a John Ford scene when Richard Gere goes to the space that the uncle had died, and then here comes the procession, here comes everyone planting the flowers, and you know, all this reverence, and all these symbols. Well, it really
1: comes out with the grandmother stuff because there's also several scenes of her praying. Mm -hmm. With other sort of wives and and people and victims of the bomb. And so like Ford, it's got this attention to the old world ritual. And then it's also got, uh, yeah, that family drama and generational conflict. It's such an intimate film with a vast scope, right?
0: Well, and uh, it's interesting that you bring up Ford because again i guess to to connect our double feature a little bit right independence day also to an extent feels like that that i guess you'd say more of the earlier ford the more middle period the war years where you have this nation being built out of war out of this you know being attacked by savage, some savage other and like the the grand rediscovery of america as as deleuze would put it right the great rediscovery of america but of course right with with this new america it's now a global america let independence day be a global holiday
1: John ford would have loved that and absolutely
0: he would have. and absolutely and and the fact that also in in a lot of ford films you know buried within it, it is also the story of remakes. Marriage, This story of, of you know, w- unions and weddings under the eyes of God, because, you know, just as they're getting ready to go off into their climactic moment in, in Independence Day, Will Smith marries his girlfriend and you
1: have the, yeah, all the, the men divorced. are sort of like reaffirmed by their women right. and their faith as well.
0: Absolutely. Under the eyes of God is the phrase that's used. And it makes sense because, again, when you're talking about Roland Emmerich, earlier and all of his influences, like he loves John Ford when he made midway a few years ago, John Ford is a character in Midway. Right. He's in there very briefly, but it's very clear that Roland Emmerich also is a big fan of, of John Ford, but it's, it's interesting, right? Because Rhapsody in August is this, this late elegiac Ford, you know, looking back and everything like, man, maybe it wasn't all worth it, you know, like maybe family is what really matters more than country, more than nation, you know, whereas Independence Day is still like the old flag waving, you know, the, the the great building of the American civilization through conflict, through struggle.
1: One thing I want to mention is the organ in Rhapsody in August. So I found this to be just like a really really wonderful recurring uh, element of the film is the oldest kid is fixing this organ at grandma's house throughout the movie and they come of course to discover that that organ was their grandfathers who perished in the bomb so there's yeah there's sort of like jokes about it the kids are playing around with the organ throughout the movie but the the oldest kid is always sort of like He's, like, like playing little scores for, like, little incidents that happen around the house. Like, when someone will make a joke or someone will chase someone around, he'll sort of, like, play them off in a little musical accompaniment. And this climaxes, you know, later uh, in the towards the end of the film when the organ is fixed and the tone is now good, and then the kids all sing a song together. Sang, wa
0: Bravo, bravo, bravo. (laughs) Sound like angels.
1: And then Richard Gere comes in, and he's, like, stoked about it. And then, of course, it's the same song that is played over the finale of the film. The record version is played over the finale of the film, and it's an old 40s Song, I believe, right? So, harkening back to the era of the war, and again, just all these sort of like, yeah, musical rhymes, and this organ is like this sort of structuring device throughout the film. And
2: there's an incredible visual rhyme with the song in that moment when, because it's the song about a rose, and you you don't hear that lyric. It's that so you know there's that. It's the great poster of the film, right? It's the the grandmother. Walking um, in the rain, just like soldiering on with her umbrella, like An inside out umbrella. And it's it's it. The way it happens in the film is she's just like pushing forward as this intense storm is hitting her. It's like once the umbrella inverts and goes inside out, that's when the song has the lyric about the rose, and it's like immediate. You you see it. You're like it. It looks like she's holding a rose. Like that's what her umbrella looks like.
0: Also, isn't there? Is it a rose? When there's the scene with the flower that Richard Gere and the and the kid are looking at, and it's it's all the ants are climbing up it, up the stem.
1: It's at the day, yeah, the day of the the Nagasaki Memorial. Richard Gere and the youngest child just like look at some ants, and Kurosawa's camera just follows these ants as they climb. And then it reveals this, like yeah, pinkish red flower, and Richard Gere and the kid are just staring. Transfix. The f- they're just staring at the flower while all these people are chanting Buddhist prayers for the dead souls of of Nagasaki. And again, it's just there's so many of these like quiet but very like emotionally overwhelming moments throughout the movie. Mm-hmm.
2: And yeah, so it reaches that apex when she starts to think it's all happening again. She's starting to get all these, like, flashes of memory. Well,
1: and this is particularly triggered by her brother's death. So Richard Gere, when he's he's visiting, they're playing around in the waterfall, and then all of a sudden it's like, you gotta go, your, your father has passed away. And Richard Gere is just gone from the movie. Immediately. Immediately. And then Grandma starts to slowly kind of just, like start acting funny and then within a couple of days she thinks the the bomb is being dropped again and she sort of just takes off for the mountains like takes off for the city reflexively just like she did in 1945 when she because that's her story as well is she went to Nagasaki. just after the bomb had dropped to look for her husband. And that's a thing we didn't mention is she also has uh, like no hair. She has like a really fucked up radiation kind of like scalp situation going on, which is introduced very early on in the movie. But so again, it's like she thinks the bomb has been dropped again and she is just, you know, 80 something years old, 90 years old, and she's just off to Nagasaki with her umbrella in the rain. And then this song plays and all the, the children and... And their parents are running after her in the rain and they're like c- kind of comically falling over to yeah, slipping in the mud yeah and like it's just all these sort of like you know tracking shots tracking every individual like ford it shows you every member of the family in succession in this very like organized kind of way and it climaxes in that moment of this family chasing after their grandmother.
2: <laughs> yeah, I also think it's worth mentioning uh, within that sequence that really struck me is when the the her another old woman friend warns the family that Grandma has run off, um, thinking the bomb is going to hit because she says from memory, like the clouds right now look exactly like they did the day of the bombing, and then we get this shot of the sky that is so. I mean, I don't even know. It's like the, the clouds look like ink and water. Yeah. It looks crazy. Yeah, they're definitely not clouds. No. <laughs> but there's something about that where they, it's they like... They looked
0: like the the sky in uh, Flash Gordon. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you've seen Flash Gordon, it was like the same kind of... Yeah. That was used, you know?
2: But I remember there was something about that that really struck me, the, the idea. It's like, this is what the sky looked like before the bomb hit or maybe it was implied also that this is what the sky looked like after the bomb fell but like yeah just seeing those clouds and it's like this day that you know has this like distinct memory it's like yeah these don't just look like normal clouds like here is this vision here is this thing that's like returning and triggering her well
0: and keep in mind you know in independence day the aliens, when they show up, they first show up in these like insane clouds. Like yeah. there's that insane right. cloud coverage over the spaceships. And everyone's looking at that going like, what is that? Everyone starts freaking out. because They're like
2: orange funnel clouds.
0: They look yeah. crazy. But I did want to also say, since you were bringing up John Ford, since we have been discussing John Ford in relation to, you know, I guess both of these films, but in Kurosawa, it should be pointed out that, that, Don't forget when the kids see Richard Gere and they're, they're, you know, Richard Gere's character is going to stay. He wants to specifically, he says, I'm staying at at grandma's house. They were going to get him a hotel, but he says, I'm staying at grandma's house. And the kids start preparing his bed. And then they're like talking about the bed and it's like, it's not big enough. He's taller than that. And then one of the kids specifically said, he's as big as
1: John Wayne. Yep.
0: Yep. They describe him as like, he's an American. He's like John Wayne. And again, you know, Ford used John Wayne a lot.
1: That poor kid confusing Richard Gear and John Wayne.
0: I
2: love when Richard
0: Gear. And then I was like, I that. And and I was was like "Is that a, all Americans? We all just look like John Wayne to you, you know? Like, <laughs> you
2: know, we all look the same to you, you know." I love when Richard Gear. Like, it's like I ought to try this bed out, and then he like spreads out, and he's just like playing it up for the kids. He's like,
0: "Well, I better try it, shouldn't I?" Yeah. Oh yeah! Oh, oh, this is a bed. Yes, this is a real bed.
1: Oh. And then he notices that the girls had put a little little flowers on his bedstand, and is then they nice. have a little like silent bow uh, in that moment. Yeah, he like uh,
2: sits and then like lightly touches them.
1: Yeah, Gear really Gear really nails it in this movie. He's cash. And I was thinking if if. If you know we do need one
0: representative for us as Americans abroad to heal the past yeah. to heal our our Dr. T can do it. Our you know yeah our fuck ups and our mistakes. I I'm I'm nominating here right now Richard Gere henceforth to be America's ambassador to the world. I, Gear 2024. Absolutely. I'm I'm on board 100%. You know, being somebody who was a Buddhist, like I'm sure Richard Gere is is very respectful of like, you know, many Asian cultures and traditions. And
2: I mean, yeah, that was like, I think the spiritual reason, you know, I, I wasn't able to find if, if Kurosawa specifically picked him out or if Richard Gere had, you know, shared interest, you know, in terms of like how the project reached him. Um, but yeah, no, there's no, uh, there's no like spiritual question as to why. Uh, he wanted to, to be in that film or why he agreed to do it. Yeah, I mean it's pretty um like Marsh said, it's a pretty
0: cash pretty low stakes role for Richard Geary. He just gets yeah. to show up and get treated like John Wayne, you know? Yep. Like a big dignitary. You
1: know? <laughs> With a nice Hawaiian shirt on.
2: Okay. Nanny, <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 I had a funny note that just said like atomic campfire tales because of like the stories she was telling. I did also like the line you had mentioned and how they didn't like her cooking and they says like I think grandma's cooking is lousy because of her false
1: teeth. Yeah, it's she all can't... bush. Yeah, it's you all mush. You know, there's bush. no texture in that Although food. That, that, that scene was so mean. <laughs> but then they, but then they cook for her. And, yeah. And she loves it. Yeah, she fucking
0: loves it. Yeah, yeah.
1: I do. I guess. I guess we should mention. There's a scene early on in the film when grandma the kids are all sort of like talking about her in hushed voices they're talking about the bomb they're not sure you know if they're gonna offend her sensibilities and she's just like lurking she's just like frozen in the hallway in the background with a plate of watermelon waiting to enter once the kids have sort of like stopped talking and it's amazing and then she just comes in and is like oh yeah here's some watermelon like the bomb forget about it it's like no big deal you know but then she also starts telling more crazy stories Yeah, and again, you know, summer.
0: What says summer like a nice plate of watermelon? Absolutely. Right? I mean, really, we said it before. To me, this movie felt so much more like summer proper than Independence Day did, because Kurosawa was just nailing all those 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 things. At least in my mind, that I well, think he's always about had a knack summer. for weather. Absolutely. You mentioned stray dog. Earlier, right, and that was. To be honest, I was one that I had thought about bringing to the table for this, but when you had picked, I was like, can't do two Kurosawa summer movies, (laughs) and I was like, and that's. I, I had to go the complete opposite direction. I went Independence Day, but I mean, fuck, man stray dog like i'm sweating just thinking about stray dog like his depiction of summer in that is is i think people when they write movies they just don't they don't think about that you know for for so many movies it's just 72 degrees and perfect but but man when it's fucking hot when you're sweating when it's like so oppressive and humid like it's going to put you on edge. You know, that's what I say. Like, think about character, right? Like, you know, when you're fucking hot, you're gonna, your temper's going to be short, you know? And people don't think about that, you know? They just, it's it's fine. It's perfect. The climate's great. But, like, imagine going through a really stressful situation and it's goddamn 95 fucking degrees out with 80% humidity. Like, you're probably not going to be thinking rationally, you know? Kurosawa, like, understands that. Whether it's heat or it's rain or it's snow like he adds those touches or or, or wind Always. howling
2: through yeah. you know like it's a it's a real
0: he's a character in in his movies
1: it's a real rhapsody yeah I mean I guess like just one to say one last thing I, I I'm actually you know I've seen a lot of Kurosawa films but I have not seen a lot of late Kurosawa films. I guess you know not having too much of a reference with other of the later films. I don't. I don't want to say I was surprised. I'm not surprised by the way that this film moves and is so precise and beautiful. But it is, yeah, it is obviously in a lower key, very decidedly so, and almost self-consciously so. It's hanging out in summer in August. You know, there's not a lot of dolly moves. If you know, really until yeah, the ending when they're following everyone run. It's a it's a static movie of composition and of sort of like family dynamic and it just he nails it the quiet the loud guy's done it all he really has turns out yeah guy, <laughs> guy made some fucking movies
0: <laughs> yeah turns out Kurosawa
2: made some fucking yeah. movies. our octogenarian master.
0: All right, so Marsh, you know, we, we, again, we presented you with our summer picks, for better or worse, <laughs> and so, you know, for you, picking this topic, what are what are some of the summer movies that, that come to your mind?
1: I'm glad you asked. Yeah, when I picked the topic, I, I don't know what I expected. This is not what I expected, but uh, I'm delighted regardless. Some of the classic summer movies, obviously, those sort of like, you know, the works of Ozu and Romare you know certain directors kind of like fetishize summer uh, in certain ways and I'm and I'm down with that for sure Takeshi Kitano as we talked about he's got you know a handful of summer related movies whether it's yeah Kikujiro or Sanatine but one film I wanted to highlight uh is The Longest Summer from 1998 directed by Fruit Chan uh this film is a sort of like medium cool for the Hong Kong handover and it was shot in uh, Hong Kong in July of 1997 and it's about a bunch of military guys who get laid off because of the handover and they decide to mastermind a bank heist because they're so disaffected and meanwhile this film is shot gonzo style during the handover so there's parades and fireworks and it has that like clash of reality and then just chaos ensues and honestly I don't even remember what happens it's just like (laughs) a total 90s Hong Kong carnage and that is you know China that. took over. That's what happened. Yeah, China took over, and that film has more like Union Jacks on fire than I've ever seen in any film. It's very funny and and cool and good. So, all right, well, uh, what do we have for uh, next week, uh, Andy? It's your turn to pick the topic. That's right. I'm up, um, and you know my choice for the topic was was sort of building
0: off of your topic. you know, you chose summer because we' we're, 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 we're just on summer's doorstep here. It's summer now. Uh, so I thought, you know what goes well with summer for me? And that's making uh, making some poor choices in love, perhaps, you know, summer romance gone awry. So my topic is, of course, in that vein, bad. Romance. So I want you folks to bring me your flicks
1: dealing with bad romance next week. Turning up the heat. I love it. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies. You could send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail and uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next week for some. Bad romances. Bye. Bye.
0: We are marked to die. We are now to do our country loss. But if to live, fewer men, the greater share of honour.
1: Mm-hmm. got some nerve. I'll say that. We think uh, Billy Nearly. Oh, shall be my brother. I think he's wonderful. He <laughs> in gentle, his gentle in his condition. Gentlemen in England,
0: now bet shall think themselves a curse they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks who fought with us upon St.
1: Crispin's Day. That's great!